The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. As we were discussing before the, the lunch break, there are some parallels between Buddhist analysis of ego function and the Freudian analysis with some differences. In Buddhism, the superego is friendlier. The purpose of the ego is long-term happiness. And again, these are functions. There's not a, a little ego in the mind arguing with a superego, but there are different functions in the mind. There's the, the voices in the mind that say, should, 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 should. And the other, the other voices say, want, 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 want. And then there's a negotiation. We've got we to you know, live in peace here. So that's, that's the ego function. But since the shoulds are friendlier, and also the concept of the one, there's no such thing as a raw desire in Buddhism. It's just a mixture of um, every desire has its reasons, and every reason has its desires. It's simply a matter of learning how to get them to work together, to work with one another. And the strategies in doing this don't have to be subconscious. And this, in fact, this is the whole point of the practice, why we're practicing mindfulness, why we're practicing alertness, and so that the functions of the mind become more and more clear and conscious to us as we're doing them. One area where there's a lot of agreement between the Freudian analysis and the Buddhist analysis is on what the Freudians call the five classic ego functions, or the functions of a healthy or mature ego. And these are the Freudian terms. One is suppression, which is not repression. Suppression is when you see that a particular desire is really unskillful and you've got to do something, not make sure that you don't follow through with it. In repression, you'd even deny that it's there. With suppression, you know it's there, but you say, I can't follow that. I've got to find some other way of working with it. Sublimation is when you take your desire for happiness and you direct it in a way that is going to be harmless. Anticipation is your ability to foresee that there are dangers down the road that you've got to prepare for. Altruism, which is the fourth function, is when you see that your happiness can be augmented by working for the happiness of other people, other beings. And the fifth one is humor. Your ability to take a lot of these issues lightly. Good humor, let's put it this way. You're able to laugh at your own problems, laugh at your own defilements, not get wound up in a lot of self-judgment and oppressive thinking. You'll find all four, five of these functions recommended in the Buddhist teachings. And he gives specific techniques for thinking in ways and acting in ways that are going to be helpful to develop these healthy ego functions. First one in the cases of suppression, the basic teaching is on passage 18. <clears throat> if by forsaking a limited ease, he or she would see an abundance of ease, the enlightened person would forsake the limited ease for the sake of the abundant. In other words, you're willing to, when you see that, okay, if you go for happiness X, which is small, but it's going to get in the way of a much larger happiness, you're able to talk yourself out of going for the small happiness and being willing to head for the larger one. 
And there's so much in the Buddhist teachings that talk about this. When you realize, that, say, by acting on a particular sensual desire, you're going to create a lot of trouble, you find other ways of, you find ways of suppressing it. For example, if you find yourself lusting for your neighbor's partner, you have to think about 32 parts of the body to realize, what in that body is really worth lusting for? And if that doesn't sound fair, start with your own body first. <laughs> this is the body I'm bringing into the equation here. <laughs> and I know a lot of people have trouble with the 32 parts of the body analysis, but um, it's not an unhealthy negative view of your body. Unhealthy negative view of your body is, my body is horrible, everybody else's body is beautiful, what's wrong with me? A healthy one is seeing everybody's ugly. <laughs> everybody's unattractive. If we all put our livers out in a row here on the floor, um, would we have a contest to see who had the prettiest liver? <laughs> would it matter? It's all pretty much the same. So you start taking your, imagining yourself, like to peel the skin off, okay, what in there would you like to look at? What in there would you like to present to the other person? And then ask, well, does that other person have anything better than I have? Well, no. And that's a really good way of suppressing lust for your neighbor's partner. Okay? If you're thinking of something you want to buy, but you really don't need it, ask yourself, okay, what are the, what's the downside? When I'm buying this, what, what am I closing off? When you buy, you spend that much money on this particular item, that means you have that much less money to apply to something else that might be more worthwhile. When you get that item, you're now stuck with being the owner of that item. You've got to take care of it, you've got to look after it. Um, try to think of all the drawbacks of falling for that particular instance of greed. When there's hatred, anger, <coughs> think of the drawbacks of anger. One of my favorite passages in the canon is, it's one of the, it's probably the least enlightened way of dealing with anger, but it's also the, one of the most effective, which is, if I let my anger take over, I'm going to do stupid things. That would please my enemy. Do I want to please my enemy? No. No word about goodwill, no word about compassion. Just, I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to please my enemy. And that's, that's a legitimate way. If it works, you use that as a way of suppressing your anger. Now, simple suppression is, is, of course, as we all know, turns many of these emotions into the thing. They grow underground and suddenly pop up in weird places. This is why you need the second function, which is sublimation. If you can't find happiness in an unskillful way, you've got to find a skillful way to divert that desire for happiness and to devote it to. And this is where practice of jhana comes in. When you're practicing right concentration, you can induce feelings of fullness, refreshment, you can induce feelings of pleasure simply by the way you focus on your breath. And even before that, you've got the practice of generosity and the practice of virtue. Finding ways of what would feel really good to give right now? Where would I get some joy out of giving things? And then you reflect on your generosity, you reflect on your virtue, the fact that you've been able in the past to say no to impulses that you knew were unskillful. And think about what that does for your sense of self-worth. And this way you take your desire for happiness and you sublimate it into an area that's more skillful. As for anticipation, from the Buddhist point of view, that's called heedfulness. Realizing that there are dangers in life and many of the dangers come from your own actions. So you've got to be very careful about what you do, what you say, what you think. 
In fact, the Buddha said that heedfulness lies at the basis of all skillful qualities in the mind. As we realize that it's dangerous if we don't develop them, so we put energy into developing. I think that's interesting because he, he doesn't say the good qualities come from our innate nature. A while back I was talking with someone who said that and she'd gone on a retreat and thought that she was finally getting in touch with her innate compassionate nature. And I said, well, when you left the retreat, was it still there? And she said, well, no. And so that shows its condition. It's not innate. It depends on conditions. So what you want to learn how to develop is how can I make sure that my compassion is solid even in difficult conditions? And we've seen some of this, you know, with 9-11, what some people would do, all of a sudden torture became something you would discuss as an, you know, a real possibility. Um, you know, with the potential for plague, the potential for a you know, total economic meltdown. Can you trust yourself that, you know, if you're going hungry for five days that you would still be compassionate? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. And if you realize, okay, I, I don't think I could last five days and be compassionate, you've got to find internal resources to guarantee that you've got a source of happiness. That's the danger that's facing you. So you have to work on finding other ways of solidifying your compassion, solidifying your wisdom, solidifying your, the purity of your actions. So you realize that with this bundle of needs that we have, as someone once said, when you're born into the world, you're born with this big gaping hole. Your mouth to begin with. And no matter how much you put in, you never seem to get it full. Like that Farsight cartoon, do you remember that one? There's this baby sitting in a baby carriage and two birds are sitting on the, on the handles. And one of them say, I've been putting, I've been putting worms into it all day and it's still not full. <laughs> <laughs> but you think about your, you know, your parents, how much they have to feed, 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 feed you and it just didn't stop. So you realize you're, you're born in the world with a lot of needs and it's very easy if the needs are not met that you can start getting, acting in unskillful ways. And that's a scary thought. Especially in this interdependent society we have now, it's very easy for the interdependence to go out of whack. So you've got to figure out what can I find in terms of internal resources that don't depend on external resources to make myself reliable. So that, the Buddha said, is the beginning of Skill, working on skillful qualities in the mind. Realizing that they're not innate, that they need work. And if you don't work on them, you're going to be in trouble. The people around you are going to be in trouble. So that's the third healthy ego function from the Buddhist point of view. The fourth one is altruism, which from the Buddhist perspective is called compassion. And there's a nice little story on compassion, passage 19. I've heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Sawati in Jaita's Grove, Ananda Bindiga's monastery. Now at that time, King Basanidhi Gosala was together with Queen Malika in the Upper Palace. You have to know the Upper Palace is their private room. It's just the two of them together. Then he said to her, Is there anyone more dear to you than yourself? Now he's not asking this kind of in the abstract. you got, you know, a king together with his wife in private. And he's asking, is there anyone you love more than yourself? And of course he's expecting to say, yes, your majesty, I love you more than I love myself. Um, but this is the Pali Canon. <laughs> <laughs> and Queen Malika is no fool. She says, no, your majesty, she answered, there's no one more dear to me than myself. And what about you, your majesty? Is there anyone more dear to you than yourself? 
No, Malika, there's no one more dear to me than myself. End of scene. Okay. The king, descending from the palace, went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Just now is together the Queen Malika, and he reports the whole conversation. The Buddha's response here is interesting. He says, Searching all directions with your awareness, you find no one dearer than yourself. Now, if you stopped right there, that would sound like a justification for selfishness, right? There's nobody out there that you love more than you love yourself. But then he goes on to say, in the same way, others are fiercely dear to themselves. So you're surrounded in a world where everybody is really dear to themselves. No one wants to suffer. So the, resu the conclusion is you shouldn't hurt others if you love yourself. Now that principle operates in two ways. One is you, know, you sense as we mentioned earlier, that you see other people are in the same position you are. You hate suffering, you love pleasure. Everybody else hates suffering, they all love pleasure. Therefore, we're all coming from the same place. That should in, um, develop inside a sense of uh, empathy. The other reasoning, of course, is that if your happiness depends on someone else's suffering, they're not going to stand for it. They're going to try to destroy your happiness. So you've got to be very careful about how you look for happiness. So the basis for compassion is here, this realization that you really do love yourself. If you really love yourself, you're not going to hurt other people, if that love is true. And finally, stories of humor from the canon. Someone once commented to me that there was, they couldn't find any humor in the canon. Part of the reason is that, one, most of the humor is in the Vinaya, which the monastic rules, which most people don't read anyhow. And secondly, I've been finding more and more as I do translations from the canon that um, there is a lot of humor that just was missed by the earlier translators, just you know, subtleties of language, subtleties of tone. Um, but the Buddha comes across, and he's, he's, he's got a pretty dry wit. Um, in terms of the stories in the, in, the, in, the, in the monk's rules, it's interesting, I think, to notice that most of the humor settles around issues of virtue, or unvirtuous behavior. When the Buddha is talking about unvirtuous behavior, he very rarely comes down and says, you horrible, evil thing. He simply says, you foolish person. And the stories show that in unvirtuous behavior does have a certain, certain kind of humor to it. You read it and you say, oh my gosh, yes, that really is human nature. I can see myself in that story. And now I can see why the Buddha would say no to that kind of behavior. Um, one of the more famous stories is of a monk named Saketa, who was, um, had psychic powers. And he goes to spend the night in a, in a shrine where there's a naga, a fire-breathing naga in the shrine. And so, of course, the naga is offended that this monk would come in and you know, take up space in the shrine. So he comes out from the shrine and starts breathing fire at Saketa. Well, Saketa has a few tricks up his sleeve, and so he breathes fire back at the naga. And then he ends up overcoming the naga with his fire and then puts the naga in his bowl, spends the night peacefully. The word of this gets out to the city the next day. Saketa is coming to the city. And so the people of the city go to the monks and say, you know, we want to fix something really special for Saketa. What is it that you guys don't get to, um, in your bowls often? And they ask, of course, the wrong monks. And so the monks say, hard liquor. <laughs> we don't get any hard liquor. It's been a long time. <laughs> So the next day, as Saketa goes for alms, every household he comes to has a little glass of you know, something for Saketa. 
So by the time he's finished his alms round, he passes out dead drunk in front of the gate of the city. So the Buddha comes along with the monks and they see Saigeta. And so the Buddha says, okay, take Saigeta back to the monastery. So it goes back. And so first they lie him down on the ground with his head toward the Buddha, but then he starts you know, rolling over here, rolling over there, finally has his feet in the Buddha's face. And the Buddha says, wasn't it the case in the past that he was respectful to us? Yes. Is he respectful now? No. And didn't he do battle with a fire-breathing Naga? Yes. Could he do battle with a salamander now? No. <laughs> That's why we have the rule against drinking alcohol. Okay. Um, there's another one. and here, here you begin to look at, see a little bit more into human nature. There was a monk named Jula Bantaka who was um, non-educated, had a pretty poor memory, but he was an arahant with psychic powers. And that was <clears throat> back in those days when they had the nuns. One of the jobs of the monks was they had a rotating roster. Once every two weeks, one monk would go and he would teach the nuns. And so it turned out this week was going to be uh, Jula Bantaka's turn. And when the nuns found out about this, they said to each other, this is not going to work because he's just going to repeat the same old stanza over and over again. This is not going to be a, an effective um, teaching at all. So they go to the meeting and he starts the formalities and says, okay, here's today's lesson. He takes that same verse that he's repeated many times in the past and he starts repeating it over and over and over again. And so the nuns turn to one another and they say, didn't we tell you? This is just not going to work. Nobody's going to get enlightenment with this one. And all of a sudden, Jula Bandaka overhears them talking. Well, maybe he's not quite an arahant at this point because he has a little bit of pride. So he immediately levitates up into the sky splits into many Julabandakas, and each of the Julabandakas spouts fire, spouts water, um, disappears, reappears, and chants many, many other phrases for the Buddha. And the nuns are saying, wow, this is never, we have never had such an effective Dharma teaching as this one. <laughs> and so Julabandaka gets carried away, and he does this until nightfall. <clears throat> so the nuns have to go back into the city where the nunnery is, and by the time they get to the city, though, the city gates are closed. So you have to spend the night outside the gates. And then the next morning when the gates are open, the nuns come into the city. All the people say, oh, here come the nuns back from their affairs with the monks out in the, in the forest. So this is why we have a rule that monks are not allowed to teach nuns after dark. <laughs> <laughs> Another story. This has nothing to do with uh, the rules. We, we told the, the story about the monk who wants to know where the end of the physical universe is. You know that one? This monk develops concentration, and so he is able to see some devas. And so he asks the devas, do you know where the end of the physical universe is? And the devas say, we don't know, but there's a higher level of devas. Maybe they know. So he enters concentration again and gets to the higher level. He asks them, do you know what the end of the physical universe is? And they say, well, we don't know, but there's a higher level they may know. And you can see where this is heading. <clears throat> so he just keeps going up and up and up the hierarchy. And finally gets to one level of devas and they say, well, we don't know, but there is the great Brahma. And if you're lucky, he will appear in a great burst of light and maybe he can answer your question. So finally, the great Brahma does appear in a burst of light with all of his adoring hosts. And the monk goes up to him and says, do you know, the, do you know where the end of the physical universe is? And the great Brahma says, I am the great Brahma, knower of all, seer of all, father of all, creator of all. On and on in that vein. And the monk says, that's not what I asked you. 
Do you know where the end of the physical universe is? And the great Brahma says, I'm the great bomber, knower of all, seer of all, father of all, creator of all that ever has been and ever will be. And the monk says, that's not what I asked you. So he asked a third time. And the great Brahma pulls him off by the elbow and takes him aside and says, look, I don't know. <laughs> he says, but you're, you're a follower of the Buddha. Go down and ask the Buddha. So the monk goes down and the Buddha says, well, you asked the wrong question. It's not where the physical universe ends outside. It's where the physical universe ends inside, that you look for, that you look for the solution to the problem. <clears throat> so you, you can see that there's, there's a lot of humor in the canon. And as I said, a lot of it is around the issues of virtue. In other words, when you realize that when the Buddha lays down a rule for the monks, it's not saying, okay, this is just bad, evil. He says, this is unwise, it's foolish. And here's an example of how foolish it is. And you can begin to see how someone might you know, behave in such a way. And it's you know, basic human weaknesses that cause people to behave in these ways. And if you learn how to laugh at them in a good-natured way, it's a lot easier not to fall for them yourself. Because you know, if you, it's it's the demon coming at you, you know, you've got to you've got to do something to keep him away. But if you recognize, okay, this is this is a foolish kind of behavior. I've fallen for it many times before, and I'm tired of falling for it. it has nothing to do with whether it's evil or horrible. It's just it's really unwise. Story from my own experience as a monk, um, living with a John Fung. One of the most difficult parts of living with him was very quickly I got a sense that he could read my mind. Now, if you're living with somebody who can read your mind, you have to be very careful about what you think about it. <laughs> have you ever thought about the, the practical difficulties of living with someone who can read your mind? <clears throat> and for my first two years as a monk, I would not let myself think about sex at all. Because um, every time the thought came up, there was also the idea, well, John Fu is going to see my sexual fantasies. I don't want him to see that. Please, no. So, well, finally, one night, I, it got the better of me. And what was, what was so ensnaring in the whole thing was my strong sense of guilt and shame around this. And see, oh, he's going to see this. Oh, this is awful. And then you go for a little bit more. He's going to see this. This is horrible. Back and forth for hours. I mean, if I could sit and meditate on my breath for hours the way I meditated on sex for hours that night, that would have been pretty good. <laughs> so the next morning, um, my job was to clean his hut after the meal. And usually he would, after the meal, he would go up, have a cup of tea on his porch, and then go into his room. And if I had anything to discuss with him, I would go up while he was having his tea. And if I had nothing to discuss with him, I'd wait till he finished his tea and then go in his room. Then I'd go up and I'd clean his porch. And I decided this morning I had nothing to discuss. So, <laughs> so I waited for him to finish his tea, and he took one cup of tea. And then he poured himself a second cup of tea. And then he pulled a book off the bookshelf, which he never did. <laughs> started leaving through the book, and I realized, okay, I've got, to, I've got to face this. So I went up, and I started pretending he wasn't there, and I was cleaning up around the, the porch. And he turned, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, that kind of meditation is a waste of time. <laughs> that was it. No guilt trips, no, you know, nothing, just, just waste of time, which I couldn't disagree. So that... So having a sense of humor around your foibles is an important part of healthy ego function. It's, and as you can see, it's a, it's a way in which it's a common part of the Buddhist culture. So we have the Buddha teaching you basically the five forms of mature ego functioning. Suppression, which he would call restraint. Sublimation, finding happiness in skillful activities. Anticipation, which he calls heedfulness. 
altruism, which he calls compassion, and then there's humor, of which he gives many examples. So, to make the point again that we made earlier in the morning, the Buddha is not teaching egolessness, he's teaching mature ego functioning. One more piece of evidence on this has to do with the Freud, you may have heard, had this was heavily critical of what he called the oceanic sense of self, or the oceanic self, like the child sense of self, which is not really well developed and has no real boundaries. It just fills its, the child identifies with everything. And again, the Buddha did not see anything skillful in the idea of the cosmic self. Both sides are critical of this idea. And the Buddha did not see it, that developing the idea of the cosmic self, as a healthy function in the path. His explicit criticism of this is short. If something is yourself, as we said earlier, it must belong to you, lie under your control. But your body and mind respond at least somewhat to your control, but the cosmos as a whole does not. We can't just say, okay, may everybody be loving. Our cosmics, our, our sense of power, our sense of control doesn't extend that far. And yet if you say that you have a feel, a cosmic sense of self, what does that concept mean? If there's no control that goes along with the self, what would it mean? Does it have any meaning at all? Aside from a nice warm fuzzy. So that's the, the Buddha's explicit criticism. If you compare the idea of a cosmic self with the rest of his teachings, there, there's several other objections could be raised. One is, as I said, the idea of a cosmic self strips the concept of self of any real meaning and referent. Because the Buddha wants you to focus on the element of control and through trial and error, through the practice, to figure out exactly how far does your control actually go. Like when you're practicing concentration, you find that you do have more control over your mind than you might have suspected that you could. But you begin to run into the limitations. In other words, when you're practicing, many times the Buddha takes those three perceptions of inconstancy, stress, and not-self, and has you push against them. How far can I go? How far can I make the state of the mind constant? How far can I create a sense of pleasure and well-being in the mind? Let's see how far this goes. How much control can I exert over my mind? He has you test these ideas before you submit to them, before you start using them. Secondly, the idea of cosmic self takes the focus away from observing cause and effect in your actions. Because if you, if you feel that you are innately, by your nature, connected, you're not focusing on the extent to which your actions are actually the connections among us. As the Buddha said, you know, we are related through our actions. Not innately, it's but through what we do. And so it's up to us to decide what kind of interactions those are going to be, what kind of interconnectedness is going to be. Is it going to be skillful and pleasant, or is it going to be unskillful and unpleasant? We have the choice. We're not willy-nilly connected. We're, ne we're connected through our conscious actions, and he wants you to be more and more sensitive to that. A third problem with the idea of a cosmic self is that it dilutes your concept of personal responsibility. We've seen this many times. Is that we're all guilty. Well, wait a minute. Some people are more guilty than others. And some people are guilty at the point where they should be punished. But if you say everybody's guilty, then where do you draw the line? If we're all responsible for what everybody else does, then nobody's responsible. The 
like if like they're saying now. It was because of the, it was because of the, the the culture that torture was okay. Wait a minute. There were a few people who actively created that culture. And maybe maybe something should be done about that to make sure it doesn't happen again. Okay. The fourth problem with it, this cosmic sense of self is that if we're all one, then none of us can attain awakening until we all do. And there's actually a branch of Buddhism that says that, which and therefore you should try to attain awakening. Because you'd have to drag all the grasses of the field and all the, the crows and birds and everybody along with you if we're all one. Okay. Any questions on those healthy ego functions and unhealthy ego functions? Over here. So, just what you were just saying before about the interconnectedness through consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what did the Buddha say about interconnectedness through unconsciousness? He, he says that we're interconnected through our conscious choices. Nothing in dealing with the unconscious. No. So then when there's the attraction between people, mm-hmm. there's oftentimes there can be an, uh, an unconscious. Okay, excuse me. He's, he says there, there are intentions that we have that we hide from ourselves. And all these things are potentially conscious. Now, in some cases, we tend to hide this from ourselves, and this is probably the worst form of ignorance there is. That it's not so much that we don't know; it's we know, but we pretend that we don't know. And a lot of the meditation is overcoming that tendency. On top of that, of course, then there are your past life connections. And people you see and say, "I really like this person. I don't know why, but I really like this person." And then if you could remember your past lifetimes, you might find out that this person had done a lot of nice things for you, or you'd been good friends for a long time. And vice versa. People you don't like just instinctively. And you discover, oh my gosh, I was married to this person last time around. (laughs) (laughs) I have a student who commented to me, she said, she, some of her friends found out that she was going to, to me for relationship counseling. They said, to a monk? For relationship counseling? What kind of fool are you? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Any other questions? <laughs> yes. I want to... Um understand a little more about what you mean by cosmic sense of self because there are teachings about um, you know metta and compassion becoming boundless and that we can experience boundless states of the Brahma Viharas and I think some people might confuse that kind of boundless state with a cosmic state so I'm just wondering about a little clarification okay the Buddha is not asking you to identify with all beings he's asking you to have goodwill for all beings which are two different things. So you're just talking about the identification with that right. as opposed to the, okay. okay. As opposed to the practice. Yes, he does encourage you to have boundless compassion and boundless goodwill. But he's not asking you to identify with everybody. I, I often 
think that, you know, in coming out of states of meditation, um, people have a way of describing them that even though there, there might not have been identification in the state itself, that in a sense, in retrospect, there becomes an identification. Right, and you have to watch out for that. Because it's very easy to get into some of the, especially in the more formless or boundless states of concentration, to feel that when you come out of it, that you've touched into some deeper reality that connects everything and everybody. Like your consciousness embraces the entire cosmos. You say, okay, even though I may be aware of the entire cosmos, that doesn't mean it's all in me. Because again, the consciousness itself is not self. And you have to watch out for that, because otherwise it's very easy to stop right there. And that way you're limiting yourself to identifying with consciousness. Not yet? <laughs> okay, let's move on. Okay, so if you look at this list that we just made about healthy ego functions, there was the, the principle of wisdom, which is working for long-term happiness. The principle of compassion, which is an altruism. And there's also the principle of purity, which you don't want to do anything to harm anyone else. And so these three distinctive virtues of the Buddha, wisdom, compassion, and purity, all grow out of healthy ego functioning. In other words, in the case of Rahula, where the Buddha said, okay, look at your actions to make sure that they're pure before, during, and after. It's in this way of working for true happiness, that you actually develop this quality of purity in your life. So this is one of the reasons why the Buddha has you do these strategies. I mean, it would be nice and easy if we could just drop all forms of action, drop all forms of things, not identify and just go for the unconditioned. But before you do that, you have to develop these qualities of mind so that when you do let go, you're letting go in a healthy way rather than an unhealthy way. If you, if you hate yourself and say, I want to practice not self because I hate myself, that's just an extension of aversion. But if after you've developed qualities of purity, compassion, and wisdom, then when you let go of them, you're not letting go out of aversion. You say, I've taken these as far as they can go. I appreciate the work they've done, but now it's time to put them aside. It's a very different kind of letting go. And you learn important lessons about happiness. You master ways of happiness that harm no one else, and this actually increases the happiness of others. So this, there's no sharp line between your happiness and the happiness of those around you. And so as you continue with this practice, you focus less on the my in the happiness and more in the issues of what you do to create happiness, i.e. just simply looking at things in terms of cause and effect. And so as you're more interested in the process of cause and effect, you're less interested in myself, my needs because they're getting more and more met. And you're more interested in more subtle issues, more refined issues of cause and effect. This makes it easier to disidentify with eye-making and the kind of my-making that lead to harmful and undesirable consequences. In other words, your sense of self begins to fade into the background and your sensitivity to cause and effect comes more to the fore as you practice alone. And as you get more and more focused on this issue of cause and effect, you find that it's more and more skillful to disidentify more and more. You see why? Well, 
One, you find that your identity causes suffering. Your sense of self can never be totally coherent or without conflict. We've talked about this earlier in the morning. No matter how you try to define yourself, there's always going to be issues of it's an incoherent, there's a conflicting problem about exactly what this self is. It also causes suffering in the sense that however you define yourself, you're limiting yourself. We mentioned that earlier as well. There's an interesting passage here on disidentification. Passage 20. The question is, now where do skillful habits cease without trace? Sounds like a strange question. It follows on first, though, there's the question of where do unskillful habits cease without trace? And the Buddha said, by being virtuous. And then the question, okay, once you've developed skillful habits, where do you overcome that attachment as well? And that doesn't mean that you go back to unskillful behavior. There's the case, he says, where a monk is virtuous, but not fashioned a virtue. In other words, you don't create an identity around your, your virtue. Okay, you're still virtuous, you still follow the precepts, but now you've learned not to identify with the, the me that's doing the, the precepting, or however you want to verb that. <laughs> can't believe I did that in two sentences. <laughs> Verbifying. The other part of identification is it inherently involves clinging, which the Buddha said is at the essence of suffering and stress. And as I mentioned earlier, once you have thoughts that are based on the conceit that I am the thinker, then there's babancha, this quality of proliferation. It comes back to attack you and involves you in conflict. Now there's another point in which identification actually not only causes suffering, but also gets in the way of eliminating suffering. And that's because it gets in the way of judging the actual results of your actions. And this applies both to your positive self-image and to your negative self-image. Because your sense of self involves conceit, i.e. comparing yourself with others. And this gets in the way of seeing what you're doing. There's a famous case where Anuruta, who at that point was not yet an arahant, comes to see Sarabhuta. And he says, you know, I've been practicing and practicing and practicing, I can't get to awakening. And the, and the sorry Buddha says, well, just that thought, I've been practicing, 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 that's conceit, and that's getting in the way of your awakening. And holding on to your sense of self there is the final thing to let go of. And then in passage 21 and 22, oh my gosh, here's the passage of Anruta, we actually have it in 22, we can go through that in a minute. Okay. Look at page, passage 21. A person of no integrity enters and remains in the first jhana. He notices, I have attained, gained the attainment of the first jhana, but these other monks have not gained the attainment of the first jhana. You know, like, my jhana is better than your jhana. <laughs> he exalts himself for the attainment of the first jhana and disparages others. This is the quality of a person of no integrity. You know, that's going to get in the way of your practice as long as you're doing that kind of comparing. Now, a person of integrity notices the Blessed One has spoken of non-fashioning, atamayata, which is related to that silamaya. See the M-A-Y-A in the middle of that word? It's related to the M-A-Y-A up in passage 20. It means making. You're not making yourself out of those things. 
And this is the Buddha has spoken of non-fashioning even with regard to the attainment of the first jhana, i.e. don't create a sense of self around it. For by whatever means they construe it, it becomes otherwise from that. In other words, no matter how you construe yourself, by the time you've come up with the concept of self, the basis for your concept has already changed. Things change that fast. So making non-fashioning his focal point, he neither exalts himself for the attainment of the first jhana, nor disparages others. This is the quality of a person of integrity. It goes on all the way up through the levels of dimension of nothingness, neither perception or non-perception. But finally, on the next page, when they're finally getting to the final attainment, I mean, even a person of knowing integrity can go really far in the practice of jhana. But that, as long as they don't abandon that quality, they're never going to get to their final end of the fermentations or their final awakening. Because in this last paragraph, they don't have the alternative of a person of no integrity coming to the cessation of the fermentations. It's only a person of integrity who can do that. This is a monk who does not construe anything, does not, and it's also the word conceive, does not conceive anything, does not conceive anywhere, does not conceive in any way. It's by going through that creation of the conceit of I am that you finally get beyond. And here's the passage of Anuruta. He goes to Venerable Sariputta and says, By means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. That was, Sarib that was Anuruta's specialty. He could see the whole cosmos in his meditation. My persistence is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness, and yet my mind is not released from the fermentations through lack of clinging. So Sariputta's response, my friend, when the thought occurs to you by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos, that is related to your conceit. Okay, this is what's getting in the way of his final awakening. When the thought occurs to you, my persistence is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and shaken, and on through all those other things. That's related to your restlessness. In other words, you're, you're, he's restless. He's really pushing, pushing, pushing to gain awakening at that point. And when the th thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from fermentation through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. So he said, in other words, drop those thoughts. Do the practice. He's not saying stop the practice, but stop building up this narrative that you've got. I've got all these powers, I've got all this, I've put all this into it, and yet I haven't gotten there yet. Carrying that narrative around at that point is going to get in the way. Now there's a certain point where you identify with these things as an encouragement to, to develop them. But once you've developed them, then you don't need the scaffolding anymore. And you put the scaffolding away. Otherwise it's like building the house and then living in the scaffolding. So getting this advice from Sariputta, Anuruta then follows it and becomes an arahant. So when you begin to get to this point in your practice, and we're talking about a fairly advanced point, where your sense of self has been helping you all along and it begins to get in the way, and you find that it's much more conducive for insight 
Instead of thinking about my happiness, just look at what are the causes of happiness, period. What are the causes of unhappiness, period. And this way it begins, you begin to look at that, that sense of I am, the sense of mine, begin to see, well, this too is a kind of karma. It's done what the work it could do, and there comes a point where now you've got to give it up. And this is the point where the not-self strategy comes to the fore. Here's where we get to the questions what the not-self teaching actually does answer. Remember we talked earlier, he, the Buddha is not answering the questions of who am I or what am I, or do I have a self or do I not have a self. The question basically comes back to that basic question for wisdom we talked about earlier. What, when I do it, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? And part of the Buddha's not-self strategy is in passage. Go back to passage 9. Okay, this comes from a much longer discourse where the Buddha has been talking about how form, feeling, etc. are not-self. So, now at that moment, this line of thinking appeared in the awareness of a certain monk. So, form is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, fabrications are not self, consciousness is not self. Then what self will be touched by the actions done by what is not self? Trick question for the Buddha. And this is, you've probably heard this in Buddhism 101. If there's no self, you know, who gets reborn? Um, in this particular case, okay, if the, my body and all my mental faculties are not self, then what self is going to be touched by these things, the results of those actions? He's thinking he's found a way out. Go ahead and do what you want, because there's not going to be any self to reap the results of what you've, what you've done. So, then the Blessed One, realizing with his awareness the line of thinking in that monk's awareness, addressed the monks. It's possible that a senseless person, <coughs> immersed in ignorance, overcome with craving, might think that he could outsmart the teacher's message in this way. <laughs> this is the problem of living with someone who can read your mind. You know? <laughs> now notice what the Buddha does. He doesn't answer the monk's question. He just puts it aside. This is not, this is not the kind of question he intended the not-self-teaching to, to respond to. Because the monk is asking, asking basically a metaphysical question. If your actions are done by these things that are not self, then what's the self that's going to experience the results? And the Buddha is not concerned with answering that question. He's more concerned with pointing out wherever there's a sense of self, there's going to be clinging. Wherever there's clinging, there's going to be suffering. And if you learn how to take away that sense of self, then you're going to end the clinging and end the suffering. That's what he wants to work, have you to work at. And this is the basic questionnaire that he uses. Okay. Now, monks, haven't I trained you in counter-questioning with regard to this and that topic here and there? What do you think? Is form constant or inconstant? Inconstant. And is that which is inconstant, easeful, or stressful? <laughs> stressful. And is it fitting to regard what is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am? And the answer is no. So this line of question is different. It's trying to get you to develop a sense of disenchantment with the self or the things you've identified as self. You're not so much concerned with metaphysical, metaphysical issues of who does the karma and who receives the karma, but it's more, okay, if I hold on to this, am I going to suffer? Yes. Why hold on to it? Why identify with it? Wouldn't you be better off if you let go? 
So you see the pattern of his teachings. First look at it. Is it inconstant? Yes, it changes. And I use the word inconstant rather than impermanent because it, it, the inconstancy refers to the fact that things can go up and down very quickly in the, in the present moment. Now, if we think of the mountains around the Bay Area, those are impermanent, right? But you could say, I could build a house on those, right? Foundations are solid enough. That's, that'll last me for a lifetime. That's all I want. But if you think of the mountains are really inconstant, you know, they're shifting all the time the way your mind does, you wouldn't want to build a house. In the same way in, in terms of your own mind. If you try to create a sense of ease and well-being based on your mental faculties, ultimately you're going to find this going to change. And you're going to be suffering as a result. So when you look at their inconstancy, you see that they're stressful. When you see that they're stressful, when you try to base your happiness on them, then you realize it's not fitting to identify with them as yourself or what you are. So those three questions concerning inconstancy, stress, and not-self actually get derived from that question about my long-term welfare and happiness. Let's go down this. Okay. Okay. First, before you, uh, you start this process, you want to do it when the mind is well-centered in concentration and has access to some stable sense of well-being. In other words, it's a mistake to tackle this too quickly because it gets disorienting. You turn around to examine your tools only when they've done their work, all the work they can. So you work on your concentration, you develop it. You don't say, well, I had concentration today, it's, in stress, it's stressful, in constant, not self, I let go. Boom. You never get anywhere in concentration. And you never get to take advantage of what the concentration can do for you, which is to put the mind in a state of stability and well-being. So it can start taking its sense of self apart and not feel threatened. So that's the first prerequisite. Okay, first you start with that issue of long-term and your long-term happiness. You begin to realize that whatever you identify as self or belonging self, you ask yourself, is this constant? If it's not constant, then it can't be long-term or not long-term enough. Then you move into the third term, the happiness. Is this stressful? If you try to base, a, base your happiness on it, it's going to be stressful. Therefore, you can't identify it as the, the kind of happiness that you've been aiming at. Okay. And then finally, with the my. If this, if this is going to be stressful and inconstant, why would I want it to be my long-term welfare and happiness? So you're taking those three concepts, my long-term welfare and happiness, and you're using the questions of stressful, constant, is it constant or inconstant, stressful or not stressful, is it self, is it fitting to call this a self? And you come up with the conclusion that, no, this is not the goal that I've been aiming at. That's why you want to develop disenchantment for it, so as you can see if there's something higher. Okay. So the purpose of this is strategic. You want to see what happens when the mind lets go of all forms of clinging. You're not trying to confirm that there is no self or there is a self. You let go of what's not self for the sake of your long-term welfare and happiness. In other words, this is a kind of advanced ego functioning very skillful, very mature, realizing that even your concept of self at some point reaches its limits, and that's when you have to let go. Any questions on that? Yes? Say it again. Say it again. Say it again.
last emphasis, okay. We're talking about those three questions that the Buddha asked, which is for the purpose of developing disenchantment. Is it constant? No. Is it stressful? Is it easeful or stressful? It's stressful. Is it fitting to be myself? No. Now those three questions come derived from that earlier question for wisdom, what would I do it will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness. And you see that if it's inconstant, it can't be long-term. If it's stressful, it's not the happiness you're aiming at. And if it's neither long-term nor the happiness you're aiming at, why do you want to identify with it as yourself? Now, the purpose of this is not to kind of confirm that there is a self or is no self, but just to see what happens when you let go. The Buddha's promise is you really let go properly, you're going to find ultimate happiness. So again, as, as is so often the case with the Buddhist teachings, they're strategic. He's not trying to win points in a debate. Or set out, you know, a view of reality that everyone says, "Oh, isn't that true? Isn't that beautiful?" He's basically giving a strategy. You want to be happy? This is how you do it. So this is why it it's counts as a, a mature ego function, although it's it's at the point where the, the the concept of self has to get dropped. You see that again. You're looking at yourselfing as an activity, as a process. And seeing, okay, this is the point where it's no longer self, uh, no longer useful. Any other questions? We're doing a lot of heavy duty um, <laughs> thinking today, so I want to make sure if there's any questions or any doubts or anything, we can work them out. Yes, in the back. I'm confused in a way. Jhana or no jhana? Mm -hmm. I hear people say yes jhana, people say no jhana, and that you can get to the end without jhana. Mm -hmm. Can you just, I know it's a whole huge topic, but could you maybe clarify? Okay, well, there's the, the main problem is that the term jhana has def been defined in many different ways. You've got the definitions in the canon, and then you've got the definitions in the commentary, and they're talking about two very different things. That's one of the big problems right there. Um, the, the quick answer would be that you don't need the jhana as it's defined in the commentaries. Because for them it's you know getting the mind into a very strong state of intense, intense concentration on an object. And then you use uh, usually a light of some kind. And then you take that light, you fill your whole awareness with it. And that becomes, you know, you're just totally blocking out all your other sense, sense doors. Um, that is not necessary. You look at the definitions of jhana in the canon, and it's basically what we're working on this morning. Full body awareness, being able to maintain that at a steady, steady basis. Because when the mind gets steady, then you can begin to see the little fluctuations. This is why jhana would be necessary. This kind of jhana is necessary, because if your mind is fluctuating around, how are you going to see when other things are fluctuating? You can't. It's like being born on a train. You ride on the train, you look out the window, and everything moves. You know? Cars move, people move, trees move, mountains move, houses move, because you're moving. You have to get still so you can see, oh, wait a minute, the people and the cars are moving, but the trees and the houses aren't moving. So you begin to see exactly where the movements of the mind are, so you can see how they cause suffering. But it's not as, 
mean, some, in some cases, jhana sounds so impossible. And the, you know, the retreat leader says, okay, we've got two weeks to practice, and I can guarantee you half of you are not going to be able to do it. And the more you want it, the less you'll be able to get it. People like that should be taken out and taught a good lesson. You know? <laughs> it's called a double bind. Uh, <laughs> um, it, one, it's not all that hard if the conditions are right. And if you're determined enough. And you understand what you're doing. So it's, it's not asking anything inhuman out of people to try to get to strong states of concentration. The word jhana itself is... It's a homonym, the word, the verb that goes with jhana is a homonym for the verb that means to burn with a steady flame. And I think it's, I think it was a conscious choice on the Buddha's part. Because in the Pali they have different words for burning, and one of them is like the burning of a fire, which is erratic. And then there's jayati, which is the word for jhana, which is a steady flame, like you have an oil lamp or a candle that burns steadily. You want to have that kind of steady quality to your, to your focus. And then you fill your whole body. And there you are. So I'd say yes, Jana. Good, Jana. <laughs> Anything else? There's a hand over here. Is there a mic over here? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I know how to even formulate this question, but it has to do with letting go. Um, and how did the Buddha see any? Value, or was it necessary to understand how the self uh, was formed? Are you or, talking or about how you were formed, or yeah, how your sense an, of an self individual was sense of self. In okay, well other that, words, that's what um, his teachings on dependent core arising are all about. So you look at your. I don't mean in the moment, mm-hmm. but I mean your history. Oh, no. You know, like, no. no. You don't need to know that. That was totally not... And so how does that fit in with Western psychology? Well, in both cases, you're trying to see that you have habits that are un- unproductive. And two ways of getting at this, to see the ha- habits, are one, look at back at your life and to begin to see there's a pattern. You're getting to your fifth husband... And you begin to say, ah, there's a pattern here. You know, when, when, I, when my marriage fails, there's a certain pattern that it falls through. Okay. And so that's one way of seeing the pattern that is counterproductive. You might want to even trace it back. Well, where, where was this pattern productive the first time? Why did I adopt this pattern? Mm-hmm. And then you say, oh, I adopted it under those conditions, but now the conditions have changed, therefore it's, uh, it's, it's wise that I dropped the pattern. That's the pattern of Western psychology. In the Buddhist psychology, they don't have to look back very far to see your patterns. You look right at the mind here in the present moment, and you can see the patterns are happening over and over again. So in order to let go of them, that that also can take place right in the present right, moment. Right. You don't have to understand the whole history. Well, you don't have to know the history. What you have to do is understand where is the gratification I get out of this pattern, mm-hmm. and what are the drawbacks. Because again, in, in, the, in terms of Western psychology, you're looking back and you begin to see, okay, there was one point where it made sense, but I've lost five husbands in the meantime. Yeah. And maybe you're better off without them, but still, it's, it's, it's rough, you know. That's a suffering. <laughs> yeah, you have to, it's a lot of suffering. And, then you begin, and the reason you let go of the pattern is you realize that the suffering that it creates is not worth the pleasure that it provided. 
Well, you can look at you can do the same thing in the present moment. You see, I'm doing, I'm relating to my body in this way. I'm relating to my feelings in this way. And it's I get a certain gratification out of it, which is why I do it. But then I begin to see that the gratification is totally outweighed by the drawbacks. And then the next step is seeing I do have an alternative. I don't have to do that. If you don't see the alternative, you say, "Well, it's you know, it's it's a bad deal, but I'm stuck. You can't let go." But if you see it's a bad deal, and I've been doing this, I don't have to do this. Why am I doing this? You stop. You stop it. The other thing about letting go, it's not that your mind has a hand that's grabbing onto things, but it has certain habitual patterns that it goes through again and again and again and again. That's called holding on. And when you can break that process and see, I, I can stop repeating that, that's when you let go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Way in the back. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know if this is. Uh, I apologize if this is word word parsing, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of. Um, I guess what I'm thinking about is just this issue of whether letting go is something. Some people would say it's something kind of you actively participate in, mm-hmm. whereas others might say it's something where you know you practice and letting go happens. But I remember when you were discussing uh, passage 22 and the person had the narrative about their happiness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you were saying, you know, drop the narrative and do the practice. Mm-hmm. And the thought that occurred in my mind is, well, I'm doing the practice so I can drop the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's kind of word parsing or it's just this kind of uh, vague area where it's sort of unclear to me in terms of how actively do we try to participate in the letting go versus just doing a certain technique or practice and letting letting go happen sort of organically. The technique is not going to do it for you. If it could, we could all get plugged in and it would, you know, it, it would sh- sort of shake the things off of us. But a large part of the practice is getting more sensitive. The reason we do the practice is so you get sensitive to the activities of your mind. And just focusing on your breath is not going to do it, but if you begin to watch your mind as you're focusing on the breath, you see, oh, this is how I push things in a certain way. This is how I relate in a certain way that's actually unskillful. And it's in your own discovery of that point. That's where the insight arises. Now, they give you insight techniques to sort of induce that questioning and to remind you that you've got to look around you. But there is no case where a technique won't do it for you. And the other question, which was kind of implicit in what you said, when I first went to study with my teacher, sometimes he'd say, use your banya, which is often translated as wisdom. And my response is, I don't have any wisdom yet. I'm practicing so I can get wisdom. You know? <laughs> and then I began to realize, well, maybe, maybe the word banya means something else, not wisdom. And that's why I use the term discernment. Because we all have some discernment to some extent when we come here. It's not that you're totally devoid. <laughs> if you were totally devoid, you wouldn't be a human being. So... There you are. So you let go to the extent that you can sense where you're holding on. Anything else? Okay, shall we take a short break? Come back here at 3 o'clock. Give everybody a chance to digest and think these over.